0: Hello everyone, and welcome to NCEA podcast. This is Kevin Baxter, the Chief Innovation Officer for NCEA, and we are blessed and honored today to have uh, Bishop Robert Barron, Auxiliary Bishop of Los Angeles, as our guest. Uh, Bishop Barron really needs no introduction to our audience. He's uh, the Regional Bishop for the Santa Barbara Pastoral Region uh, in the Archdiocese of Los Angeles. He is the founder of Word on Fire. He uh, did the Catholicism series on PBS. Um, and he again uh, is well known to Catholic school educators across the United States. So Bishop Barron, welcome.
1: Kevin, thank you. Delighted to be on with you. Good to hear your voice again.
0: Yes, and Bishop Barron and I um, were colleagues in uh, the Archdiocese of Los Angeles. And so it's great to great to speak with you today and we're honored by your presence. Um, We want to talk about a few topics the first one uh, obviously uh, has been so relevant the last few months with uh, the uh, COVID 19 pandemic and the shutdowns had major implications for our church first and foremost but also for catholic schools Uh, i did a little bit of research for this and looked at some of the things you were doing online and you talked about kind of honoring this pascalian moment about the spiritual opportunity that the quote-unquote, free time we had uh, allowed us to grow spiritually. So I want you just to talk a little bit about that uh, before we then uh, start talking more specifically about Catholic schools.
1: Yeah, um, that line from Pascal at the beginning of this crisis uh, struck me. Namely, most of our troubles flow from the fact that we have a very hard time sitting alone by ourselves in a room. And his his point was, we spend most of our lives uh, seeking distractions, so that we don't come to grips with the great questions. So Pascal himself was a gambler. So he he spent a lot of time, he's a great genius, and he, he frittered away a lot of his time uh, gambling. And he said, a lot of human life is like that, because we prefer not to deal with the question of God, the question of meaning, the question of morality, the question of eternal life. And so we distract ourselves. So. It just occurred to me at the beginning of the crisis when we all were kind of shut down and, and we were forced to spend more time alone by ourselves. I thought, well, okay, here's as you say, the Pascalian moment, maybe to come to grips with those questions. And I, I mentioned things like reading a great spiritual classic, maybe a book that you've you always wanted to read, you never had the time. Spending time with the Bible, do Lectio Divina. Spend time in in prayer and spiritual conversation, things that we would normally not do. So I, I think that really was an opportunity, and I, I do think from my pastoral experience out here that some people did take advantage of that Pascalian moment. So that was my idea there.
0: Yeah, that's beautiful, and I I think it's often the adage of life about when when you have something that's a challenge or a struggle, there can be opportunity or opportunities for growth there. I even think about family, you know, our family's all been together, obviously, which um, we never would have anticipated, you know, three months ago that we would have had this much kind of time together and, and the gift of that.
1: Right. Yeah, right. I had a book on the creed I was working on and it was on the back burner and, you know, given all my pastoral responsibilities and, you know, LA, you're in the car all the time. And so mm-hmm. I'm just all over. I worked on the book in sort of dribs and drabs. Well, during the last couple months, I was able to finish it. Because I I had more time. And so that was a wonderful kind of both intellectual and spiritual exercise for me to go through this book on the Creed. So, you know, those were some opportunities we had. That's great.
0: Um, Talking about Catholic schools specifically, so when, um, you know, when the the shutdown first happened in in mid March or so, what we heard really across the country that was inspiring, really, and, and wonderful to hear is the Catholic schools did a wonderful job of transitioning to this remote instruction, remote learning, and especially almost in comparison with other other schools, how, how how well they did that. And just, I think it demonstrated the resilience and commitment of Catholic school educators. And then it's obviously gone along. And I think one of the challenges we still hear and i think this is relevant um for the fall too is is that sense of spiritual community that sense of connection that's so valuable at a catholic school that that you build community and you you you're in person with community and i know that's the church too at this point so i'm just curious about how you viewed that and how you can maintain or again maybe we don't maintain it but how do we do the best we can with, uh, with the reality that we have.
1: Yeah, I, I agree yeah. with you. I was struck by how well people uh, transitioned. And, and thank God, because of the technology, just think if you know, go back 20 years, we didn't have this technology. This thing would have been far more disruptive. But a lot of us you know, move kind of seamlessly into the Zoom sort of world. I think of you know, as a bishop uh, attending meetings. I think I did attend all the meetings, but now they were by way of Zoom. Well, the same is true of our, our school kids and teachers, is they were able to continue their, their work. And again, thank God for that technology. Um, I would say at this point, I'm sick of Zoom. <laughs> you know, I've done so much of it. But in the beginning, it wasn't bad. You know, I, I had meetings for, let's say, the USCCB at the national level. We had our California bishops meetings. We had uh, administrative meetings in LA. And you know, I could see everybody, I could hear everybody. And I could finish the meeting and say, hey, I'm home. I don't have to face a two hour drive. Uh, so in a way it was, I think, okay. And a lot of the teachers and, and students, I think, felt that. I had a marvelous experience. They invited me, it was a school in the Denver area. And they'd been using some of my things in their class. And they just wrote to me and said, hey, would you be willing to uh, talk to the class? And I thought, well, why not? I don't have to fly to Denver. I can do it right here in my office. And we had a marvelous little Uh, Zoom, all the kids were on with their teacher, and they had about 10 or 12 questions for me. And, uh, you know, so there were things like that that were, um, were possible because of our technology, thank God. There's a wonderful
0: quote. I've said this now numerous times on the podcast, so longtime listeners will be sick of it by this point, but um, the superintendent up in Seattle, her name's Kristen Dixon, said to me at the beginning that she was choosing not to focus on what might be dying through this process, but what might be trying to be born, and, and I think that's a sense of innovation. It's a sense of creativity. It's a sense of how can we learn with this new technology to maybe do our jobs more effectively once we are
1: back. Um, in person. so do you feel that? I mean I do uh, that when we get back, I hope we do use more of of this technology because just think of all the time a lot of us spend traveling and hotels and you know just the schlepping back and forth that maybe we can do more of our gatherings this way with less wear and tear in all of us and with a greater opportunity to, you know, pray and study and read and you know, I I just think that a lot of us around the country, we got so addicted to all of our meetings and all that goes along with that, that maybe the Lord was teaching us something during this time.
0: Yeah. I mean, a great story. We had our, our convention was supposed to be in person in Baltimore this year. And that's in mid-April. And we had to cancel it. And we had about 4,000 people, maybe 4,500 people who were going to come travel to Baltimore to be there. And when we canceled it, we did a virtual event. And so we did it virtually online. And we weren't really sure what to expect. And we had over 7,000 people participate. And I've heard from numerous people over the course of the shutdown from different parts of the country that said we've had a hundred percent participation in our principal meetings in the state we never get a hundred percent participation so
1: exactly i really believe that what i just said that maybe the lord is telling us something about the way we do this we have these meetings in in california with the the bishops and um we twice a year and one is in in burbank for people in southern california the other one's in sacramento well i mean it's great to get together with the guys i always enjoy doing that but just for the Northerners to have to come all the way down here and hotels and all the travel. For us in the South, to go all to Sacramento. And we, we had that meeting by Zoom. We were able to finish it in, in less than a day. And we all were in our offices at the end of the meeting. You know? So there's something yeah. to be said for that.
0: We're uh, we're moving into the fall, and there's a lot of uncertainty still with uh, where we'll be. Um, obviously, all schools and especially all Catholic schools want to be in person to some degree or another, but that's going to be determined a lot by what the reality is in local communities. Um, I was uh, I was looking at um, I think maybe your most recent uh, word on fire. Uh, discussion, Um, and you were talking about uh, sharing, um, weren't able to share sacraments, but prior to obviously uh, having mass uh, back in person, you did a couple of drive-in services in the Santa Barbara region. And um, there was something you said when talking about that we can talk about the service but you said it's not perfect it's not ideal but let's do it and i and i feel like that's the message we're trying to communicate to schools because so many people talk about gosh it's so hard to do faith formation when we're remote or it's really hard to do these things when we're you know doing it via zoom and we think it's not the same it's not ideal but we have to do it right and So I just think that approach and I'm curious if you have advice, because especially because people have done it now this spring, you can see some, you know, um, kind of frustration and and exhaustion setting in in terms of of how they're delivering this.
1: Yeah, as I say, I'm kind of sick of it now because we've done so much. But no, I think that what's the cliche? Don't let the uh, the good be enslaved to the perfect. You know, Uh, I mean, yes, it's not ideal, but it's something. And so, you know, yeah, do it and that maybe there might even be something about it that is better in some ways. I, I wonder, so the wear and tear factor, that's true. But I wonder even, you know, teachers and students, th- there is a kind of strange intimacy with the Zoom. You know, when you're looking, there's someone's face right there, you know, and you can, you can engage them. Uh, maybe there is a kind of advantage to it in a way. But sure, let's do what we can. Um, light the single candle and don't curse the darkness. I, I agree with that. That's why you know the online masses that we did. Of course, they're not ideal. Of course, it's not what you want. But you know, heck, they were they were good for that time. Right. Right. A lot. It's funny. A lot of people when they would write to me would say things like, you know, I never noticed before what the priest was doing at the altar. We're in my little tiny chapel in my house, right. which is like a little room. And the camera was right there, and so they said, "I could, so, I could see what you were doing in the chalice." And I thought, "Well, okay, maybe there's an advantage." <laughs> you know, they got a certain greater intimacy uh, uh, with the mass.
0: Well, and I mentioned to you prior to we started recording that my, my family and I have uh, attended—I guess I don't know—I'm putting that in quotes—your uh, online masses, and we did Easter. And um, I wanna say we saw, I think 25,000 people might've been you know, uh, viewing your Easter liturgy, which I think you know, your ability obviously to evangelize and your, uh, your, your, your great gift I think is evangelization and, and what you've done with that. But to be able to communicate to 25,000 people, I don't think you anticipated that number in your, on your Easter uh, masses, right?
1: For Word on Fire, it was a great opportunity in many ways. Uh, we had numbers that we'd never seen before for a lot of our, our um, uh, platforms. But okay, you know, I, I just looked at it that way that, all right, the Lord threw us a curveball here, but, you know, what do you do with that? You don't just curse it. You say, well, maybe there's an opportunity or there's something fresh we could try or that, you know, even shutting part of life down is going to open something else up. I think that's all of that is what a person of faith uh, engages. That's great.
0: Well, let's change topics here. Um, a topic that you and I have talked about um, a few times in the past as well is uh the perceived incompatibility between uh, faith and science. And um, you've uh, obviously been a tremendous um, resource on this in the Archdiocese of Los Angeles. I know you spoke to our high school principals about it, and uh, we had you engage a number of different ways. and there's so many ways we can go with this because I know, and you can take it in a number of different directions, but the one piece that you've shared that I really resonates with me and even in my conversations with young people sometimes who bring up challenges to the faith and, and science answers all our questions, you know, and that standard response is, you know, science can tell us all the the what's and the how's of life sometimes, um, but the why questions never get answered. And those why questions is what we seek in faith. And it's what we try to wrestle with and and think through. So um, speak a little bit to that, uh, and just your work on this in this regard, because it's so valuable, obviously. You know,
1: Kevin, let me share something. I just came across this. Uh, You know, the name David Tracy, the great theologian from the University of Chicago, now who's a now a man in his, I think early eighties or mid eighties, but I, I've known him for a long time uh, from my Chicago days. And David just came out with a book called Fragments and it's a series of, of essays, right? Well, in one of them, he had a very provocative uh, um, observation. He said, we talk about the sciences and the visible world, and, and they give us access to the visible world and help us to understand it and all that. True, right? All that's correct and they give rise to technology which we benefit from and all that is great. But he said, think of something as simple as as mathematics. And I don't mean even high mathematics, just the simplest mathematical moves, uh, addition, subtraction, multiplication, the basic geometrical forms. He said, whenever you're dealing with mathematics, you're dealing with the invisible. Right, I mean, and that goes back to Euclid. A, a point, I can put a little point, you know, with my pencil tip on a piece of paper. But when I'm thinking about a point in in geometry, that's not a visible, physical thing. That's a pure abstraction, or the number seven, or a line, or a triangle. Right, all those mathematical realities are invisible. Quite simply, they're invisible realities. Now press it, Tracy said. All of science, especially contemporary science, depends intimately upon mathematics. If you're doing the higher type of science, or you're doing kind of quantum mechanics and that kind of stuff, you're using mathematics at every level. Uh, my nephew, right now, he's a great kid. He's a junior, going to become a senior at MIT. So he's doing high, high level uh, science and engineering and all this. What does he use all the time, this kid? He uses mathematics all the time in his scientific work. The point is, even though he's dealing with things like robotics and building batteries for cars and you know designing these high-level things, he's dealing with the invisible all the time. Now that's David Tracy's point. So that when we say, oh look, I'm a science person, I mean I just I deal with the with just visible things. I don't deal with all this crazy invisible stuff. No, it's not true. Not true. All the time you're dealing with the invisible. Now look at the, the Nicene Creed. We believe in one God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, all things visible and invisible. You don't have to talk yet about angels and stuff. I mean, we can get there. But, but anyone dealing with the sciences, I'm going to argue, is dealing all the time with invisible things. And I think I got that from Tracy is a, is a cool way, at least to open the door in this science-religion dialogue, you know, that we're not talking about two completely unrelated worlds. But in fact, there's a there's a very interesting link between the visible, which the sciences indeed look at, but they do so with the help of the invisible all the time. And I just thought that was a very provocative way to um, maybe tease somebody into thinking about this issue in a new way. That's great.
0: And I think that's what I appreciate about you, and um, and I think others appreciate about you is the way to communicate these things in a way that's accessible, and and people can really grasp them and understand them. The other thing that you you do, and I think this is something that I think we all have to take a, a lesson in, and and if I can be so bold, other clergy as well, is a willingness to engage, um, kind of the other side, if you will. And I know you've had debates and things, but. Um, when you when you approach it that way, what is your what would your aim be? And you know, um, you often talk about Dawkins and Hitchens. Um, obviously, Hitchens is no longer with us. But but if you were going to sit down with an atheist or someone who was going to debate you, do you you obviously don't approach it? I, I don't say obviously, but I would imagine you wouldn't approach it. You're going to convince them of your point of view. No. Uh, so, what is the aim in your mind when you do those things?
1: Well, I'd say to establish um, at least some bridges. So, yeah, it's probably naive to think, you know, I'm going to convince someone utterly. Um, but you might build a couple bridges. And, and this Tracy thing, so I thought was a very interesting bridge to say, I, you know, you look at me as a religious person and say, oh, he's dealing with these wild fantasies and these crazy invisible things. Well, then say, no, but you're dealing with the invisible all the time, too. And that could just be a bridge or it's a door, you know, that might open up. Or one thing, too, Kevin, is, is simply to clarify certain uh, things that allows someone to get over an intellectual obstacle. You know, oftentimes I find in my dealing on the internet with, with people is they're just blocked because they didn't get a proper religious instruction and their mind says, Nope, that can't be right. Until someone says, no, no, man, you're, you're understanding that all wrong. That's not what we mean. You know, when we say, Uh, I, I've said for years, a lot of the atheist, um, critiques go away. Once we carefully define who God is and who God is not, a lot of it comes from just misunderstanding what we mean when we use the word God. So that could be another thing, is just simply to to overcome certain obstacles that are blocking people. But I'd say bridge building, opening up of windows and doors, you know.
0: That's really helpful, because I think part of the reason why I asked that question is that teachers are obviously um, faced with this on a, on a daily basis often, is that they're, to either teaching science or maybe teaching religion at a high school level, and, and kids will come with questions, right? They'll challenge, and they would have read something either online or somewhere. And, and then oftentimes we are um, faced with that spiritual, not religious kind of mindset. And so there where you almost do have a kernel of something, how do you— and I think that I, concept of bridge building is a great thing for teachers to keep in mind, of just kind of building those bridges that can be built
1: further— and, you know, and you're right about the spiritual, not religious is a really dominant point of view. But I, I'm very, I mean, it could be a, an opening of a door. So I, I'm not opposed to if someone says I'm spiritual, I'd say, Okay, great. Let's start there. Let's start with what you mean by that. But I would never want someone to end there, you know, as though, oh, yeah, that's okay. I'm, I'm fine with that. As long as you're kind of vaguely spiritual. To me, that's like saying, I, I'm a I'm a sports guy. I'm into athletics, but I just don't play any particular sport. <laughs> you know. Like, oh, which which sport do you play? Oh, I don't really play baseball or football or hockey or anything, but I, I'm very athletic. You know, <laughs> so I don't think you can leave it as I I'm spiritual, because religion is just a way of saying all those practices and beliefs and commitments that instantiate your spirituality. And see without that, the spirituality becomes so amorphous and so, so vapid that it doesn't engage your heart or your body or your mind. You know what I mean? There's like, when I say I'm a Catholic, well, that's a whole set of beliefs and practices and convictions. And it's a whole way of life that grounds me in something. And, And unless you have that, you're not really seriously spiritual, right? Um,
0: Last question on this is, uh, what would your advice be to Catholic schools? We've uh, obviously talked about this also, but it's an incredible percentage, you might have it in your mind, of the number of young people who've left the church under 30 years of age who cite the uh, perceived incompatibility between uh, faith and science as the reason why. And I think of our Catholic schools as being the vehicle where we can address this over the long term. Um, and so what would your advice be to Catholic school principals and teachers from the elementary level on up to high school uh, to help mitigate this?
1: Yeah, don't give up on it and realize that it is a problem. Because you say quite rightly, Kevin, that comes up in all the surveys uh, again and again. It's a it's a perceived disconnect between religion and science. Now, how do you address it? One thing we did, you remember this up in our, our region here, I got these, these wonderful posters yes. of Catholic scientists. And it's a big poster with, I don't know, maybe 25 or 30 faces on it, right? And I said, okay, let's get those in every single um, Catholic school or religious ed, you know, program. And they did. The pastors took them and I said, have assignments, have the kids research, you know, these scientists or talk about these scientists. Something else I've recommended is have the religion teacher bring the science teacher into class. Or get someone from the parish, you know, who's a doctor, is a physician, is an astronomer, is a physicist, have, and who comes to mass, right? Have them come in and explain why they don't think there's a conflict between these two things. Um, teach the history of, of the faith-reason relationship in our great tradition. It's one of the jewels in the crown of Catholicism, that we don't drive a wedge between faith and reason. Uh, teach them that great tradition. So I think there are ways we can concretize this, but I think for teachers to be aware of it is super important.
0: That's great. So, in the remaining time, I want to um, turn to uh, issue. Obviously, another huge issue in our country right now is this of um, systemic racism and the Black Lives Matter movement, and 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 uh, how that's obviously impacting our society. Um, the USCCB put out a document last year called "Open Wide Our Hearts," which was a pastoral letter on racism. I um, want to acknowledge the loss of Bishop George Murray. I think it's the first time we've done a podcast since his passing. And, you know, he was a former um, chair of the board at the NCEA. So, you know, very fond affection for him. But um, in that document, there's a quote from Pope Francis that says, let no one think that this invitation is not meant for him or her. And I think that's what we're trying to reflect upon is sometimes in our own minds, we can kind of, you know, say, oh, well, I'm not— racist or I'm not, you know, I, I tend to see the things, um, you know, in colorblind ways. And I think that can sometimes can be a dangerous road to go down. So what are the bishops talking about in terms of this or your own, your own thinking on, on this, um, reality that we have in our, our country today?
1: Yeah, I, I think a, a serious examination of conscience is called for, um, use the 12 step language of a searching moral inventory. I think that's good for all of us, you know, as you say, to look at this issue with great honesty, uh, we, probably can play games with ourselves and say, well, this is not true of me. Well, you know, ask some hard questions about it. Um, So I think that's all to the good that we would engage in that kind of um, introspection. Um, Something else I would say, Kevin, about this, I've been thinking about a lot. Vatican II, as you know, stressed the universal call to holiness, it stressed the role of the laity. Uh, The whole set of issues that we're dealing with right now in our, our culture. Well, they're all in the arena if you want of the laity what i mean is they're in the the secular realm the realm of our society and our culture and vatican ii said that the priests and bishops are the uh, priests prophets and kings we sanctify and we teach and we share you know from the great tradition but then the role of the laity says vatican ii is to go out into the world and change it and christify it to bring the power of the gospel out into culture, into communication, into politics, into law enforcement, everything else. And so I think that's the challenge of our time. When people say, and I hear it a lot, you know, why aren't the bishops doing more? Well, the bishops have indeed, we've made our statements and we've clarified as we do in this document, the church's view, and that's indispensable. But what I have said to people is, well, okay, but now what are you doing? Because we're teaching the gospel truth here, the moral truth. Now, go, go. I, I mean lawyers, and I mean police officers, and I mean writers, and I mean critics, and I mean teachers, and I mean parents. Now you go and transfigure our culture from the inside. So I, I think it's a, it's a time for a real collaboration between clergy and laity, and not to fall into a you know, kind of sniping at the clergy from the sidelines, like, like we need to solve this problem. No, it's, it's a problem for the laity to engage their secular realm and uh, and Christify the culture. So that I see it as a real collaboration of, of clergy and laity.
0: Yeah, I, I think about it in terms of our own personal um, kind of reflection and kind of what we're doing individually. And then I think of the church, which is an example to us all, um, we have the great example of of St. Catherine Drexel, who founded, you know, I think 50 schools for African-Americans, 50 missions for Native Americans, uh, Xavier University down in Louisiana, which is the only Catholic uh, historically black college and university. Um, and we can celebrate that and, 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 and be honored by that. And then we also have to recognize that there were Catholic bishops who failed to formally oppose slavery in its time or even own slaves. And I think what I try to think about is in terms of this is where we all are. We have our our darkness and our light. And and it's trying to reflect upon that and and recognize how can we bring things forward that can be all light.
1: Right. Yeah. Right. And, you know, to be honest about it, both personally and culturally.
0: Yeah. Last last question is that you you had a tweet yesterday. um, And again, we're recording this on June 23rd. It's going to run in a few weeks. Um, But uh, they've been toppling statues uh, and there've been a lot of conversations around Confederate you know statues, and I think, obviously, relevant in the country where things are right now. But they toppled uh, statues in California of uh, Saint Hunipero Serra, and there's some conversation about whether um, his statue should be in Statuary Hall in the in the Congress. Uh, and the bishops put out a statement yesterday, and so just want you to comment a little bit on Hunipero Serra. Um, I think when he was canonized in D.C., you were there. And so just speak uh, about him and his role in California and his importance to the California church.
1: Yeah. And, you know, as you know, Kevin, broaching this subject is always uh, dicey because there's, you know, there's complexity in the historical record and so on and so forth. But you know what's bugging me was some of the characterizations of Junipero Serra as, you know, the moral equivalent of Hitler, the missions as the moral equivalent of death camps. I thought, oh, man, come on. I mean, that's for the birds. Uh, say what you want about, you know, Sarah and the, and the kind of colonial times that he lived in. Sarah was um, an evangelist and Sarah was a great protector of the, of the indigenous people. Um, you know, and I think to be honest about the historical record, sure. And where maybe some decisions he made, not ones we'd make today, sure. But to characterize him the, the way he's being characterized, and to see him as a great enemy of the um, indigenous people is crazy and it does a great disservice to him and also I thought it was doing a great disservice to the church and it was not accurate historically and it was not edifying spiritually. so that's why I, I was one of the people kind of urging the California bishops to to make that um, that statement so you know it's it's always tricky. I understand that and you don't want to you know be either or about this thing but I thought the characterization of, of Sarah was so unfair. And someone that, you know, Pope Francis himself personally came to to our shores to canonize. Um, you know, I think the church should speak up in his defense.
0: And I think that conversation is uh, where it's really important too, is being in, in dialogue with, with people and to communicate. And um, that's tremendous. We are uh, at our allotted time, Bishop Barron, and, um, and I, uh, I just want to uh, thank you again so much. This is such a gift to, uh, to me personally, but to, to NCEA to have you on the podcast. And, uh, you know, we obviously keep you and uh, the other bishops in our prayers and wish you all the best in uh, Santa Barbara and in, enjoy that weather.
1: Yeah, it's a little gloomy today, but usually it's lovelier in Santa Barbara.
0: Thanks very much. Uh, this is Kevin Baxter, Chief Innovation Officer for NCEA. Thank you for joining us for this NCEA podcast, and we will see you next time.